1: Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another week and another full-length episode. I am very excited to get into the month of May to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. And I didn't mention this last week when I was covering Chanel Miller's story, but that was actually one of the reasons why I was like, you know what, this is the perfect time to talk about Chanel. And even though I didn't get into it very much in the episode, when you read her memoir or when you follow her on Instagram, or get to know her story a little bit better. You see that her Chinese-American culture is very important to her, it's a big part of her life, and it's a big part of the story that she wrote and her love of her family. So that was kind of the intro to that. But today, I wanted to talk about a feminist activist that was part of the AAPI community, even though this person may not be considered exactly a feminist, as they weren't part of the Feminist movement per se, but I think that they embody pretty much everything that a feminist is. And now I'm a firm believer that anyone and everyone can be a feminist. It's a common misconception in our society that feminism is exclusively a female or even cis female space. And that's how the movement began. There is so much history of exclusion and hierarchy in the story of feminism, but as time goes on, we have been able to expand the definition of what it means to be a feminist and who is involved and welcomed into the movement. It's rare, but a few men have been subjects of episodes in the past, such as Harvey Milk, William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, Do y'all remember William Lloyd Garrison? Oh my gosh. What a man, right? And I think it's important to note these male feminists throughout history, to show the men of today that they are allowed into these spaces. My subject today, Kiyoshi Kurimaya, was not a quote-unquote feminist per se, like I said, but I believe that is in part because many movements at the time were so segregated. But he still fought for the rights of all humankind, showing what I believe to be true intersectionality. Hiyoshi Kuramaya would refer to himself later on in life as the Forrest Gump of activism because he had his hand in so many different movements. He was an Asian-American openly gay activist in a time when that was virtually unheard of. From a book entitled Gay Asian Masculinities and Christian Theologies by Patrick S. Chang in 2011, it opens stating, The gay Asian-American body is a highly contested site with respect to masculinity. On one hand, we gay Asian men are often seen by the white gay community as sexually undesirable because our, quote, oriental racialized bodies are perceived to be less masculine. On the other hand, we are often seen by the straight Asian American community as sexually dangerous because of our perceived deviance from the heterosexual norms of masculinity. The experience of living at the intersections of racism and homophobia is a common theme in the narratives of gay Asian men. Many gay Asian men experience a profound sense of metaphorical homelessness. To paraphrase Jesus' saying about the Son of Man, we have nowhere to rest our embattled bodies. We neither belong fully to the gay community that is overwhelmingly white, nor do we belong to the overwhelmingly straight Asian American community. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, Monday, May 8th, Kiyoshi's birthday is tomorrow. Kiyoshi was born on May 9, 1943, in Wyoming at the Heart Mountains Concentration Camp, formerly and more widely known as internment camps, where his family had been relocated from Monrovia, California. Both of his parents were born in California, and Kiyoshi is third-generation Japanese-American. As a reminder, shortly after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which authorized U.S. military to create military zones in the form of internment camps for any individuals deemed to be a threat. Yosh or Yash, I think I'm going to go with Yash. That's just for some reason what's been going on in my head when I read these articles, who is one of Kiyoshi's uncles, remembers the day of the Pearl Harbor attack and receiving a draft notice shortly after. He says, after what my government did to us, I could not be in the military and kill others because they were in a different uniform. This was beyond my feelings of humanity. I couldn't do it. We lost our individual identities. We were given a family number by our government, but the draft board put my personal name on my draft letter. I had to answer it. If nobody else agreed with my decision, so be it. I was not willing to kill nor die until my government squared things with me. He ended up spending three years in a federal prison for dodging the draft. Yash also said, though his father was unable to take the same actions he had, he was the inspiration for what he did. He's also quoted saying, I also felt so close to nephew Kiyoshi. The three of us have birthdays within days of each other, so maybe we could communicate at a different level. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover believed mass internment of Japanese Americans could not be justified. However, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt, head of the Western Defense Command, argued in favor of the internment of Japanese Americans residing on the West Coast and then eventually throughout the country. Now, this is a really terrible thing to say, but just to show you how fucking awful this guy is, he was once quoted saying, a Jap is a Jap is a Jap, meaning that every second and third generation Japanese American who were U.S. citizens couldn't be trusted, much like Kiyoshi's family. It didn't matter if you were actually coming from Japan, or if you came from China, or from Korea, or from any other Asian country in the world. It didn't matter, and it didn't matter if you were born here or not. If you looked to be of Asian descent, you were put into these camps. The War Department eventually defined Japanese Americans, Italian Americans, and German Americans as peoples to be excluded from the United States. Soon after, 110,000 Japanese Americans were forced into these camps, and eventually approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans would be held in these camps. Hart Mountain in Wyoming was chosen for one of the camps because it was very remote, yet convenient, isolated from nearby towns, but close to fresh water and adjacent to a railroad depot where more Japanese Americans could be transported to. The first inmates arrived at Hart Mountain on August 12, 1942. Thousands came from Los Angeles, Santa Clara County, San Francisco, and Yakima counties. They were given barracks based on the size of their family, and they moved in. Each barrack contained one light, a wood-burning stove, and an army cot and two blankets for each member of the family. Bathrooms and laundry facilities were located in utility halls, and meals were served in communal mess halls, both assigned by block, like you're in prison. Armed military police manned the nine guarded towers surrounding the camp, always watching. The inmates could find work in the hospitals, schools, mess halls, or the garment factory, cabinet shots, sawmill, and silkscreen shops run by camp officials. Most inmates would only make about $12 to $19 a month. Children of inmates had very few supplies available for school. Eventually, they built both a high school and an elementary school, equipped with classrooms, a gymnasium, and a library. The school even had a football team, the Heart Mountain Eagles, who would even compete against other local high school teams. Thankfully, Kiyoshi would not spend his entire childhood in these camps and would mostly grow up in Monrovia, California. He and his mother would return to Heart Mountain in 1983, which Kiyoshi claims was a formative experience for him as an activist. But of his time living in the camp, he says he doesn't remember a thing about it. In an interview from 1997, he says that his family called this period of time the camp days, saying, Generally, it's treated sort of like, let's not dwell on the ugly side of it. It's sort of like, well, that's something we accepted, and it was our own little thing, and we don't make a big deal out of it. However, I'm sure the adjustment from the camp to back in Monrovia was really difficult, When they were forced to flee to the camp, they were instructed to only bring what they could carry. Many people lost their jobs, valuable possessions, and even their homes and other property. Young Japanese Americans began the Redress Movement, inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement, to petition the U.S. government to provide those interned with reparations. Kiyoshi said in that interview, Consequently, reparations were paid to survivors, about two-thirds of the people who were still alive in 1992, We were given $20,000. I got my $20,000 grant in 1992. He had a sister who was born one year after he was in the camp, and he also had a brother who was born once they returned to Monrovia. He said that when they were in elementary school, kids threw rocks at him. He was only 8 or 9 years old in the early 1950s when he came out to his parents. In his own words from an interview with fellow Philadelphia gay activist Tommy Avicoli Mecca in 1983, I guess I first came out when I was about 8 or 9 years old in California. At least came out in terms of my parents. I was fairly active sexually. Okay, you were sexually active at 8 or 9 years old? What? I mean, I know 8 and 9 year olds that I don't think even really know what sex is yet. But I guess like... I have to imagine being in this person's mind and body and feeling these urges and this attraction to something that can't be explained to you and that you haven't seen in the world before. And I can understand that curiosity, but like that's also sadly how he was able to discover things about himself, he doesn't speak of himself like he was a victim at any time or anything like that. But I personally just have feelings because I think of a, you know, a child who is so innocent, but also so like, open to everything in the world, and I picture him possibly getting in some really terrible situations and circumstances because he's so young and being sexually active. I mean, also, like, think about STDs and, like, oh, all this kind of stuff, but also in the early 1950s, like, we weren't talking about STDs and protection, and he clearly – had no point of reference. I mean, families today still find it difficult to talk about sex with their kids. I can't imagine what it would have been like in a household in the 1950s. And I also can assume, not from experience, that maybe an Asian American household in that generation might even have different expectations as well than a white home in the 1950s. I don't know. Well, he was arrested around the same time when he was found with a 16-year-old for lewdness in a public park. And for this, he was sent to Juvenile Hall for three days as punishment. He said the arrest made him feel like some sort of criminal and left him feeling a lot of shame that forced him to be secretive about his sex life. He said... It instilled this level of shame in me. So from that point on, I think there was always this aspect of misbehaving or maybe even living on the wild side or being on the wrong side of the law, which kind of perverted me. I mean, this makes total sense to me. He was not a teenager at the time, so he wasn't quite going through teen things yet, but he also grew up pretty fast. And teenagers like to do bad things sometimes, like to feel like they're doing something wrong and getting away with it. And even though being gay was not wrong, at the time, it probably felt like this fun little secret in a way. I mean, probably only when he was this young, though, I feel like once you're older and actually want to have relationships, it gets a little bit difficult. And so his parents were not so pleased about this, as you can imagine. They were both embarrassed and shocked, but they figured he would grow out of it. Fun fact, parents, kids don't grow out of being gay. They just get gayer. People knew why Kiyoshi had been sent to juvie. And he said that this actually helped him get a lot of dates to which I said, Kiyoshi, no, you are a child. Don't date. I was in the car the other day with my little nine year old and her friend. And this friend was like, oh, yeah, I have a boyfriend and I've already had two boyfriends before. And I'm like, why are you wasting your time on boys right now? You are nine years old. Like, come on. But I had a friend like that growing up that had boyfriends since she was like in fourth grade. But like, man, that just seems like a lot of trouble. Kiyoshi also suspected that his little brother was gay. In an interview from 1997, he said, he has a girlfriend, but he's not married and has no children. Although I will say this, I'm third generation Japanese American, grew up pretty much in suburban, primarily Caucasian schools in Los Angeles suburbs. There were eight people in my extended family who were third generation, and three out of eight are gay that I know of. He also said that it was during his time at Monrovia High School that he came to realize even more important than my racial identity was my gayness. In my opinion, this would be an early take on the struggles of intersectionality. I feel like people still believe that they have to fit into a specific box or identify as one certain thing rather than embracing all that they are. This is something that will also be seen as he gets involved in different movements as he gets older. At the time, he actually went by Steve instead of his given name, but I'm still going to call him Kiyoshi. But if you look back in some articles and photographs, they'll say like Steve Kiyoshi Kuramaya on them. He mentioned in his interview with Tommy Mecca in 1983 that he didn't know the terminology of his sexuality due to a lack of literature on the subject. He had never heard of the word gay before and didn't know what a homosexual was. But he started going to the Monrovia Public Library to research more about his identity, which he knew was very important to him. He said that his parents had even gotten him special privileges so he could go into the young adult section of the library. This, I think, is pretty cool because I feel like his parents probably knew what he was looking into, and the fact that they would assist him in being able to get this education I think is really great, even though they figured he would grow out of it, but maybe because they thought he would grow out of it, they were like, "Eh, let's just appease him (laughs) from an interview in 1983, and there was not very much literature at the time. I think it was about 52, 53, 54, the early 50s. There wasn't much literature. The only thing I could find, because I didn't have access to the adult section at the Monrovia Public Library in Monrovia, California, I'd go to the county library, and Kinsey's report on sexual behavior in the human male had just come out. So at about nine years old, I found a copy on the open shelves in Duarte Public Library. And although I'd had a fairly active sexual life, I guess for my age at the time, I didn't know any of the terminology. I didn't know what a homosexual was. Never heard of the word gay. I don't know that it was really used at that time. And all I knew was what was important to me. And I knew that was very important to me. He said it was when he started going to the county library, which was understaffed and couldn't keep their eyes on kids, that he discovered the reference area and found Kinsey's sexual behavior in the human male. Now, there's a whole episode about the Kinsey scale that Keegan and I did about two or three years ago, probably. I just remember it was during the pandemic time. But this was a sort of like scale that could tell you how gay you are, essentially. Like it's it's been debunked. It's pseudoscience. But at the same time, there was a lot of research put into a lot of these things that I think are still really valid and helped us understand gayness so much more as time went on because of some of these like original and early studies and things like that. But this study really opened Kiyoshi's eyes and he said, so sitting at the little table there at nine or ten years old, I read through the whole book. When it was time for him to go to college, he decided that he wanted to go to the city of Philadelphia solely for its motto, the city of brotherly love. Oh my god. He began attending the University of Pennsylvania in 1961 as one of six Benjamin Franklin National Scholars. This is a huge scholarship which covered almost all of the costs of attending. He was not only an inspiring, budding activist, but he was a nationally ranked Scrabble player, a Kundalini yoga master, and a food critic. When going to college, he decided that he wanted to study architecture. He says that he agrees with his friend, Buckminster Fuller, who says that architecture is, quote, "...an area for comprehensivists, people that are interested in the arts and technology and history and humanities." I always just think of George from Seinfeld who likes to tell people that he's actually an architect. He had also chosen Penn specifically for architecture because at the time there was a huge movement in architecture in Philadelphia. In school, he joined the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, which we've talked about many times on the show, during his first year at Penn in 1962, where he participated in sit-ins around Maryland. He also joined the Students for Democratic Society and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Hiyoshi was in attendance for the March on Washington and was not far from Martin Luther King Jr. as he gave his I Have a Dream speech. Wow. That day, he met Dr. King along with Reverend Ralph Abernathy and James Baldwin later that night. And after that, he continued to work close with Dr. King throughout the Civil Rights Movement. He was with King, John Lewis, Hosea Williams, and many others marching across the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on Bloody Sunday, where he was clubbed and beaten by, by citizens and police. Peter Cummings reported on March 24, 1965, in the Harvard Crimson. Within seconds, the quiet streets were filled with screams. The horses rode straight into the crowds on both sides of the street. One boy, Stephen K. Corimaya, an architectural student at the University of Pennsylvania, held his ground. Four horsemen converged on him, clubbed him to the ground, and rode over him. Curled in a fetal position, Kiromaya tried to cover his head with his arms as unmounted deputies clubbed him and kicked him in the stomach and groin. Finally, they left him as blood streamed in glistening lines across his face and formed a scarlet pool on the sidewalk. He needed 20 stitches from the attacks upon him that day. In response to the horrors that occurred in Selma, Kiyoshi and his fellow activists took over Independence Hall in Philadelphia, calling it the Freedom Hotel. A week later, he traveled to the South to meet with King and Reverend James Foreman when they were assaulted by police while helping a group of black high school students register to vote at the state capitol building in Montgomery, Alabama. He talked about this experience in Life magazine where he said, I was in the South during the spring and summer of 1965. After Reverend James Reeb was killed, we marched and I was clubbed down and hospitalized. When you get treated this way, you suddenly know what it is like to be black in Mississippi or a peasant in Vietnam, you learn something about going through channels then too. I gave my story to an FBI agent in the hospital. He took seven pages of notes, but I remember thinking at the time that it was probably just about as effective as relaying information to the ACLU via the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Nothing ever came of it at any rate. So I partially agree with part of that, but partially disagree, (laughs) because I think that, you know, while you can grow a lot of empathy in fighting beside someone of another color or another experience. I don't think that he can truly understand what it means to be living in that constantly. But I think that when you are treated that way because of your association with someone who is seen as lesser than, you do start to kind of feel that same level of degradation and anger and hurt. So I do understand where he's coming from, but I feel like in today's day and age, it wouldn't necessarily be worded that way. The day after the incident, injured and bedridden in the hospital, Kiyoshi confronted the county's presiding officer about the incident and received an apology. Dr. King said that this was the first time that he knew of a Southern officer ever apologizing for injuring a civil rights worker. Kiyoshi and King also received a signed statement from the sheriff disbanding the sheriff's volunteer posse. Kiyoshi and Dr. King became very, very close. They were so close, in fact, that after King was killed, Kiyoshi went to help care for his children in Atlanta during the week of his funeral.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: Though he had come out to his parents as a young child with barely an idea of what it meant to be gay, he said he officially came out on July 4th, 1965 at the first annual reminder protest, which took place at Independence Hall. The annual reminder protests were held yearly from 1965 to 1969, and it was among the earliest LGBTQ demonstration in the United States. The purpose of the annual reminder was to inform and remind the American people that gay people did not enjoy the same basic civil rights and protections as straight people did. The first annual reminder protest took place just before the Stonewall Uprising, which kickstarted the gay liberation movement, and they decided to shift their focus to the Christopher Street Parade, now known as the Gay Pride Parade. So really, Kiyoshi was at the conception of the Gay Pride Parade, which is pretty cool. Kiyoshi also became very involved in the anti-war movement while in school and instigated the largest anti-war demonstration in Penn's history in April of 1968. And this story is pretty infamous if you know anything about Kiyoshi. So prior to the protest, he printed out leaflets from a fictitious group called AmeriKong, who said there would be an innocent dog burned with napalm in front of the Van Pelt Library at Penn in protest of the napalm used in the Vietnam War. He posted these posters all over campus, creating quite an upset. On the day of the protest, more than 2,000 outraged and curious students showed up where they would receive a flyer that said, Congratulations, you saved the life of an innocent dog. How about the hundred of thousands of Vietnamese who have been burned alive? Of course, he never had any intention of actually hurting a dog, but it's an interesting tactic. He knows that people will always come to the defense of animals and dogs especially, and this created a huge crowd and a lot of awareness. He joined one of the future Chicago 7, Abby Hoffman, and others who are organizing a large demonstration where they would attempt to levitate the Pentagon building by joining hands around it in a performance art protest. Now, let me clarify. Abby Hoffman is going to have to have an episode all unto himself because he is a character, to say the least. His protest tactics and the way that he behaved and spoke are pretty outrageous. So the fact that he would claim that he could levitate the Pentagon is pretty funny. (laughs) The event is also known as the March on the Pentagon and it occurred on October 21st, 1967. About a hundred thousand people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial with about 50,000 marching across the Potomac river to the Pentagon, sparking confrontation with paratroopers on guard. The soldiers had created a human barricade blocking the Pentagon steps So this is a large group of protesters and what seems like a lot of, like, National Guard and other armed military who are trying to protect the Pentagon, and everything is slowly building and coming to a head. At this, Abby Hoffman vowed to levitate the Pentagon, claiming he would use his psychic energy to do so until it would turn orange and begin to vibrate, at which time the Vietnam War would end. Allen Ginsberg led Tibetan Chance to assist Hoffman. For protesters who tried to get inside the Pentagon, they were stopped by tear gas and rifle butts. The protesters faced down the troops with bayonets for hours. Around midnight, the troops chased most of the protesters away. It was from this polarizing protest from which we got that infamous image of the protester placing flowers in a paratrooper's rifle. During the protest, Kiyoshi joined the other protesters in taking police barricades to make bonfires all the way around the length of the Pentagon. I'll share some footage of the event on Instagram because it's pretty unbelievable. In 1968, he created posters for mail distribution under the name Dirty Linen Corporation. The posters depicted Bill Greenshields burning his draft card with big, bold letters stating Fuck the draft on it. Again, for the image, check the Instagram. He was arrested later in 1968 by federal marshals and the Secret Service for using the U.S. mail system for his crime inciting an indecent poster. Despite the danger in doing so, he handed out about 2,000 copies of this poster at the Democratic Convention at the Chicago Conrad Hilton Hotel, which was surrounded by machine guns and jeep trucks with barbed wire. Following the uprising at Stonewall in 1969, Hiyoshi co-founded the Gay Liberation Front, GLF, with Basil O'Brien. He described the idea for the group as sort of a male consciousness raising that served to help people deal with the isolation they felt as a result of their sexual identity. The GLF in Philly was very diverse, with members who were Black, Latin American, and Asian, though they were only a small group of about a dozen at the beginning in 1969. When asked about what made GLF different than other groups that came before it, Kiyoshi said, well, the racial composition. Though they were small, they were mighty, and more radical than some of the other organizations that formed out of Stonewall. Kiyoshi also spoke on the difficulties between melding the women's movement with the gay movement in the early days. He said, We also were well-versed in documents like Martha Shelley's Woman-Identified Woman, and I had my own views. I don't want to define the women's movement, but it was also the idea that gay liberation had to do with men's consciousness raising. And the women's movement generally had to do with looking for women-identified women. And these were kind of parallel consciousness-raising movements with leadership on both sides being gay. Male consciousness raising was incredibly important to Kiyoshi, and he worked to build a bridge between gay and straight men by teaching men of all sexual identities that it's okay to be in touch with your feelings, whether sexual or on another level, he said. Kiyoshi also said that the revolution will not be complete until all men are free to express their love for one another sexually. Under Kiyoshi's leadership, the GLF stood in solidarity with the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords. Now, we know a lot about the Black Panther Party on this show, but the Young Lords were a Chicago-based street gang that became a human rights and civil rights organization. The group aims to fight for neighborhood empowerment and self-determination for Puerto Rico, Latinos, and colonized third world quote-unquote people. They were two targets of the FBI's COINTELPRO program. Kiyoshi also represented the GLF as an openly gay delegate to the Black Panthers' Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention, held in Philadelphia in 1970, at which he presented a workshop on gay rights. The Black Panthers were unsure at first how a partnership with a gay rights organization would pan out, but they increasingly recognized the connections between racial injustice, the women's movement, and the gay rights movement. Huey Newton, along with Bobby Seale, said of the intersection of race, gender, and sexual oppression, "'Whatever your personal opinions and your insecurities about homosexuality and the various liberation movements among homosexuals and women, we should try to unite with them in a revolutionary fashion. I do not remember our ever constituting any value that said a revolutionary must say offensive things toward homosexuals or that a revolutionary should make sure that women do not speak about their particular kind of oppression.' And I know, through reading and through my life experience and observations, that homosexuals are not given freedom and liberty by anyone in the society. They might be the most oppressed people in the society. Kiyoshi's Uncle Yash tells of a family picnic in the 1970s that Kiyoshi showed up to in quote, his sandals and pigtails looking like a hippie, to a conservative church picnic. I enjoyed it. I too always felt out of place, but I could never do what Kiyoshi did. I learned about myself from Kiyoshi's actions. He was so ahead of me. He became my teacher. This is so beautiful, especially within a culture that is taught to always respect elders. This elder man actually looked up to and saw the value in his younger nephew. Unfortunately, there isn't much written about this, but during the 1970s, Kiyoshi survived through a battle with lung cancer. When the 1980s came around, he had a new evil to fight, the AIDS epidemic. Kiyoshi was also a founding member of ACT UP, the AIDS coalition to unleash power, who were legendary in their protesting tactics at the time. When he was diagnosed with AIDS himself in 1989, just two years after founding ACT UP, it only intensified his advocacy work. His motto was, information is power. He began to educate himself on the AIDS issues to the point where he was invited to participate in the National Institutes of Health Alternative Therapy Panels. He even created the ACT UP Standards of Care, which tells the minimum standards of care for a person struggling through HIV-AIDS. He also founded the Critical Path newsletter, which was mailed to thousands of people worldwide as well as to hundreds of incarcerated individuals who didn't have access to AIDS information. This was eventually turned into one of the very first websites on the internet. The site was filled with the latest HIV-AIDS information to keep people informed. From there, the site became the host to the Critical Path AIDS Project, which was a 24-hour hotline Kiyoshi set up for anyone who wanted his help. A gay man who had once briefly known Kiyoshi, Chris Bartlett, said, You didn't have to wait for the next journal to come out in the month. You could get on the very day the information that might be the difference between your surviving another month or not. He also provided free internet access to hundreds of people with HIV-AIDS in the Philadelphia area. In a 1994 Philadelphia Inquirer profile, the paper described him as the city's most knowledgeable layman about HIV. In 1993, Kiyoshi was arrested after protesting at the Capitol building and White House on behalf of people with AIDS. He recounted his experience being arrested that day like this. I'm in the back of the police van on the way to the police station from the White House. We were mostly people with AIDS in the van, and one of the plastic handcuffs were on too tight and it was cutting off circulation, and this person was scared, so of course I slipped out of my handcuffs. And of course everyone thought I was Houdini at that time. I said, no, I'm used to this, I know exactly what positions to put my hands in as they're putting them on, and I can get out of it. I borrowed someone's nail clippers and got everyone else's off as well. Next up, Kiyoshi began going after our lawmakers and legislation in the U.S. that was against the gay community and the spread of information about the AIDS virus. In 1997, Kiyoshi went to the Supreme Court to expand freedom of speech rights to protections of the circulation of sexually explicit information about AIDS on the internet. Sexually explicit, in quotes, of course. This led to the court striking down part of the Communications Decency Act, This act was originally enacted in 1996 as an attempt to block patently offensive material online. In his testimony, Kiyoshi told a panel of judges, I don't know what patently offensive means in terms of providing life-saving information to people with AIDS, including teenagers. He was involved in another lawsuit in 1999, Kiromaya versus The United States of America, which the sound of that just sounds terrifying. Can you imagine going up against the entire United States? where he presented his case for the legalization of marijuana for medical use for people with AIDS. He also took care of a lot of AIDS patients. Jane Shull, the CEO of Philly's organization, Fight, said, In the days before there was really any treatment, he was doing an ad hoc basis, what we would call hospice care now. He also ran a marijuana buyers club as a medical marijuana activist and served a few dozen clients with AIDS in the Philadelphia area with free weed. Now that is a good man. On why he was focused on his work, he told an interviewer in 1997, I believe activism is therapeutic. Now, that's all the notes that I have on Kiyoshi. There wasn't a whole lot of information about him out on the internet, and a lot of the websites and articles were telling me the same things over and over and over again and giving me the same quotes over and over again, though I was lucky to find the transcripts for a few of those interviews that he did during the 80s and 90s. But I wanted to talk for a moment about the fact that he refers to activism as being therapeutic. Because I think that that is something that is very, very true in my life. And I think that it's true to everybody in general. Usually when we come to activism, it is for maybe a specific reason or a specific hardship that we've been through in our own lives. I know for myself, my activism has evolved because of the different things that I've been through in my life. I've always been a really big advocate of mental health awareness because I've been dealing with different mental health struggles since I was really little. When I was in high school and in my early 20s, I was an advocate against self-harm. When I was going through my eating disorder, I was an advocate about awareness for eating disorders and for better access to therapy and treatment. Getting out of an abusive relationship helped me find feminism, helped me find my own power again, even though that's something that I'm still working on. All of this is something that helps me feel stronger. The other thing that Kiyoshi always said was that information is power or knowledge is power, one of those things. And I think when we go through traumatic things or when we've been mistreated in life, we as humans want to learn to understand what has happened to us so that we can grow and move forward, at least the healthy ones of us do. (laughs) And by gaining more and more knowledge about the person that you are And gaining more and more knowledge about the ways that certain groups of people are being mistreated, the more you're going to have that innate instinct to want to do something about it and be an advocate for something or against something, you know? It's once our eyes have been opened to things that we suddenly become so frustrated with it that we feel like we have to do something about it, right? Right. And by doing something about it, it's healing for ourselves. It's healing for others. There's nothing better than being able to talk through your experiences. There's nothing better... Than being vulnerable and being brave. And now that doesn't mean that you have to let everybody into every single dirty detail of your life, but at the same time, finding when it's appropriate to be able to share your story and who you are to be able to relate to other people, I think that that's the most important form of activism that we could possibly do. And that's something that I've always really gotten through this show as well. I'm really bummed that I don't know more about this person because he truly does seem fabulous. Hopefully in the years to come, there will be more and more written and discovered about him. There was a Google Doodle a few years ago with his face. He is becoming more and more known, I feel like, in gay spaces, but I feel like his story truly does need to be highlighted as something very spectacular. Here is someone who was born in one of these terrible Japanese concentration camps that our country forced large populations of Asian Americans into, born into such a terrible circumstance, coming out, having their family, you know, work together and love each other and have him go through some really rough times as a kid because he didn't understand his identity or who he was, to suddenly coming into himself in such a powerful way like I was thinking about his uncle talking about how he showed up to this picnic just 100% himself you know gives no fucks about what anybody is gonna say and that is the person that I've always really strived to be as well this is who I am get used to it I'm not changing myself to make anyone else more comfortable and I think especially in Kyoshi's day that was a really dangerous thing to do and also a very huge statement I'm incredibly inspired by his work ethic, his ability to see the intersections within his own life and his own activism, but also within other movements as well. I think that he definitely needs to be discussed and brought to the light more because his story truly is amazing. And he eventually did pass away in the early 2000s. And it did come out later on that it was because of An AIDS related illness. And that's also a reminder that we lost way too many people way too soon of AIDS because our country did not do everything that it could to support the people that were struggling and dying from this disease. And it's sad that Kiyoshi couldn't be here today to continue his activism, because he would be old, but he wouldn't be that old. Like, it sounds like this guy never would have stopped. And I can only imagine what he would have continued to do with his life had he been able to complete it. I don't think his life was over yet. I think that Kiyoshi is such an amazing example of healthy masculinity, of someone who is open to the experiences of others and someone who is incredibly empathetic and loving, but you also don't want to fuck with him. (laughs) And I feel like that's also how I would want to describe myself. So we are kindred spirits. All right, unfortunately, that is everything that I have on Kiyoshi for all of you today. If there's anything that you want to add to the story or any comments that you want to make about Kyoshi, please DM me on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist or email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. A big reminder that a new Patreon episode will be out this week. I am working my tush off on listening to Still Learning by my dear friend India Oxenberg again. I have to admit it is a little bit difficult now that I'm very close with her and I was just discussing this with her the other day that it is really hard for me to compartmentalize the friend and the person who's gone through a lot of these really terrible experiences even though I knew about what she went through before I knew her as a person it's still really hard for me to combine those two at times and so I'm really apprehensive to go through and listen to all of this again and to write it down only because I feel like my emotion is so much more raw, especially hearing her voice describe a lot of the things that she went through. So I'm working on it. It's getting there. It will be out Wednesday or Thursday this week. I will update you. I'm shooting for May 10th right now. And in the meantime, as you listen to her book, please start sending me questions that you have because the second episode covering this book, I will be having an interview with India and she will be answering some of your questions. She's very excited about it. She's really happy that you all are listening to the book and that you, you know, want to be a part of all of this. So if you are not part of the Patreon book club yet, now is definitely the time to do so. There is a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash Feminist to join the $5 level, which will be the Angry Feminist Book Club. But if you also want to get some extra goodies, you can join the $8 level called the Feminist Faves tier, where you will receive all of these episodes ad-free and also more and more bonus content to come, as well as all the book club stuff, too. And last but not least, if you love the show and you want to tell the world, go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show, or go over to Spotify and rate the show there. Both are incredibly helpful. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rate on. Bye!